You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. In the movie Contact, Jodie Foster puts on headphones and picks up an extraterrestrial signal from space. In real life, SETI scientists don't use headphones, and they're still waiting for that message from E.T., but they have focused almost all their attention on listening. Now some scientists want to broadcast messages as well. Up next, the results from a conference that took up the question, if we talk to the aliens, what should we say? It's Big Picture Science. something on this one. That's a design. It is? Sure, can't you see? Flowers against the background of gravy. The television show I Love Lucy was a big hit when it hit the phosphorus screens in 1951. During the next decade, tens of millions of Americans faithfully tuned in to watch the wacky escapades of Lucy and her pal Ethel. But when an evening's episode was over... Even when the entire I Love Lucy series ended in 1960, the show itself just kept on going. Not reruns. Its signals were still moving out into space. Well, don't you worry. We'll go. Moving at the speed of light, the transmissions quickly left Earth and within a day were beyond the solar system. They're still moving now, and they're how far? Uh, 64 light years away, at least those first episodes. And, you know, they're, they're moving out into space like waves in a pond of water. And that means that they've washed over roughly 10,000 star systems. In fact, they're reaching a new star system at a rate of about one a day. So theoretically, if there's an alien civilization in one of those 10,000 nearby star systems, they could catch an I Love Lucy episode that was originally broadcast when Harry Truman was the U.S. president? Yeah, those early episodes are just now reaching their planet. Lucy's antics may be enlivening the nearby realms of our galaxy. Ever since we said I do, there are so many things we don't. But the episodes of I Love Lucy and those of every other television show around the world are messages we've only inadvertently sent into the cosmos. Electromagnetic wave leakage, if you will. But scientists have also deliberately beamed messages into space in the hope of reaching out to E.T., and some scientists propose sending more. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where scientists study the nature and origin of life. Big Picture Science steps back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology. And in this episode, should we draw on the best of both to attempt to make contact with aliens? Well, that question, along with, well, what would we say to them then, was the topic of a recent conference. Find out what those scientists propose we do in this hour. Like endless rain into a paper cup They slither wildly as they slip away Across the universe That famous Beatles piece has been heard by literally billions of humans. But maybe some other more exotic music aficionados are about to become fans of the Fab Four. In 2008, NASA used a large antenna in Southern California to broadcast this song towards Polaris, better known as the North Star. Unlike the TV broadcast of I Love Lucy, this small example of pop culture was sent beyond Earth deliberately in the hope that it would reach an alien civilization. 
Of course, even at the speed of light, John Lennon's Across the Universe is going to take about four centuries to get to the North Star, and it's far from certain that there are any planets orbiting Polaris that are home to musically inclined aliens. Still, it's a rare shout-out to the cosmos, an attempt to put Earth in touch with whomever, and we don't do that often. Because while scientists involved in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, or SETI, have been listening for a half-century, there have only been a handful of attempts to send a message. And meanwhile, the probability that there might be someone there to receive it has grown. There's now evidence of past and present liquid water in our solar system, gusts of methane gas on Mars, and the discovery of extrasolar planets continues at a breakneck pace. We now know of a thousand planets orbiting other stars, and some of them seem to be Earth-like. The potential real estate for ET's home has grown. And that prompts some scientists to ask, well, why wait for the aliens to contact us? Doug Vakoch sees no reason to. So, as director of interstellar message composition at the SETI Institute, he organized the Communicating Across the Cosmos conference in December 2014 so that scientists could talk about talking to aliens. There's been increased discussion about whether SETI scientists should get active about doing SETI, of actually transmitting intentional signals out. And so the the conference was really to deal with two scenarios. One is we get a signal today, tonight, sometime in the next few weeks, or whenever, or we decide to send intentional transmissions uh, with messages of our own to, to other stars. And in either case, we need to be thinking about what we would say. Are you prepared to receive a signal tonight? I am so ready. I, I have been ready for uh, uh, several decades, so uh, no time could be too early. Okay. You'll let us know if that happens. Well, on the second half, which is not discussed as frequently, this idea of communicating to aliens, um, is this idea new? Does this represent a shift in policy? Because so much emphasis has been at least with SETI, on receiving messages and, and, and not so much broadcasting out or, or crafting a message to send out? Well, there have been some symbolic efforts to communicate. There was a, a powerful transmission from the world's largest radio telescope in 1974, the Arecibo. Arecibo. That's right. Okay. And then some spacecraft, uh, also NASA spacecraft, uh, two of the Pioneer spacecraft had plaques showing a man and woman and some scientific principles on it. And a few years after that, in 1977, uh, the Voyager spacecraft included a golden record with over 100 pictures of Earth, music from around the world, some sounds uh, to, to give extraterrestrials who might stumble across it as it travels through interstellar space a, a little sampling of what it is to be human. Let's talk about what we might say to the aliens. But before we do that, why? Why should we broadcast to an alien civilization? After all, these are vast distances. And by the time we heard anything back, it would be our great, 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 great whole string of great grandchildren that received the message. Well, one thing, one reason that we should be transmitting is to think about those great, 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 great grandchildren. You know, I, I wish when SETI researchers began the search over 50 years ago that they would have started transmitting at the same time because we could have checked to see whether we've gotten any replies back from nearby stars, stars that are 25 light years away. So I would say it, it would take a long time. So we should get going sooner rather than later. But the other reason that we might transmit is that it's not just for the benefit of humans, but for the benefit of the extraterrestrials. Uh, sometimes people say, maybe we're not going to be around long enough even to get a reply back. Well, if that's the case, it's all the more critical to let them know what we have, how we think, who we human beings are. I think there's something important about that legacy. How does one send a message out? We've tried it with Voyager. We've tried it with spacecraft. Okay, that's one way. That's very physical. But there are other media that we can use. I've heard light. Um, suggested there are radio waves and so forth. What are some of the top contenders? Well, spacecraft are nice because there's concrete. You know, you get the Voyager spacecraft, there's a record on it, and there's even the stylus, so you can play it. You have a, a concrete artifact. Now, the downside of a spacecraft is it travels so slow. I mean, it's going to be 70,000 years before the Pioneer spacecraft is even close to another star. But when we transmit radio signals or laser pulses, those travel at the speed of light. The nearest star is just a little over four light years from Earth. 
So that means we could get a, a reply back if that's inhabited in a little over eight years. What would be in that signal? Would it be words that someone had spoken? Would it be sounds? Or what would be encoded in that signal? Well, that's the whole question that we raised in communicating across the cosmos. Now, ultimately, we would have maybe a, a bit stream, a bunch of ones and zeros, two slightly different frequencies. That was the format that was used in the Arecibo message that was transmitted in 1974. The interesting thing is, what do we encode in that? Do we encode language? Do we encode pictures? Do we encode math? Do we encode science? And we might want to try all of those. I think there are challenges with each of those types of message content. It may be that extraterrestrials need to know math, but maybe their math isn't identical to ours. Now, you initiated a program called Earth Speaks, and you asked the public what messages they would want to transmit into space, and you got such a response and such a diversity of, of answers. Uh, what sorts of things did people say to you? Some of the greetings are similar to the ones that were included on the Voyager recording, which was a bunch of greetings from Earth, hello from Earth, welcome from Earth. Uh, but the Voyager recording really focused more on the positive side, everything that we're proud of. It was interesting looking at the Earth Speaks messages because there were some that were much more ambivalent or that show the ambivalence that at least some people have about making contact. There was one that came from Christchurch, New Zealand that said, as much as some of us would like to meet you, most of us will be too afraid to handle your very existence. Be prepared. And we see something similar. Someone from Covington, Ohio sent in a message. Some of us are hoping to know you. Others are afraid of you. The rest do not believe in you. And, and so I think there's a sort of a sense of ambivalence that some of these messages are indicating about contact. Did any of them say, as they do sometimes in the science fiction films, like, can you help us? Or uh, maybe you have the advanced technology that can solve some of our problems here on Earth. Absolutely. One of the, one of the ways we analyze these uh, messages is to look at how often the words were used compared to their use in English in general. And one of the things we found is that two words that were used by men and women, young and old, much more often than in English in general are please and help. Uh, there was one message that came in from Minnesota that said, please help save our planet Earth. Some of our species are destroying it, and the rest of us cannot stop them. And, you know, my view is that we can't expect the extraterrestrials to fix our problems. But, but I think sometimes people say, too, well... What do we have to tell an extraterrestrial? I mean, if they're so much more advanced, they know science, they know all this stuff, maybe they have the solution to galactic peace. And so there's almost a cosmic inferiority complex. One thing I will guarantee is that an extraterrestrial will never be more human than we are. And so I think that's what we should embrace. Try to characterize what it is who we really are and send that. And that may just be enticing enough to get a reply. Doug Vakoch is Director of Interstellar Message Composition at the SETI Institute. Okay, so he's opened up the subject of what we might say to the aliens, but as for who should craft that message, well, journalist Morris Jones made the case to the attendees of the Communicating Across the Cosmos conference that the group given the task of crafting the message might want to include a professional wordslinger one of his colleagues. After all, communication is a journalist's job. When reporters put a story together for print or broadcast, they're doing so for an audience that they've never met, and that might be rather different from themselves. Imagine being asked to compose a message to extraterrestrials. Now that's a plum assignment. Morris, you're a journalist. You're a writer. Now, how does that bear on the question of communicating with extraterrestrials? We're not trying to sell them a subscription to the evening news. No, but uh, what journalism teaches you is how to summarize a me message and get it out to a large number of people. So it's mass communications. And when you think about it, uh, in some ways, extraterrestrial communication is just doing this at a much greater distance. Well, why don't you describe for me uh, those aspects of journalism, particularly as it is today, that bear on the question of sending messages to 
a reader, a recipient, a listener, somebody at the other end that you don't know? Well, the whole point of journalism is that it's trying to describe the world and humankind and everything that happens around us in a, in a clear and concise form. And so there are techniques for how you observe, how you collect the information and how you present that information to try to get a lot of things across or get the most important points across quickly and easily. So I think if you think of limited bandwidth, we've got to think, what are we trying to say to the extraterrestrials? What do we notice about ourselves that we consider to be unique? And that's like news of ourselves to another species, just as we make news about ourselves for ourselves in, in traditional journalism. So you're trying to explain either events or concepts or something like that, and, and so we might benefit from the kind of attack taken by, by journalists. But journalists also are trying to interest the, the reader, if we speak of print journalism, right, or the viewer. Are there techniques there that we might benefit from paying attention to? Well, I think one of the things I'm thinking about is that if extraterrestrials are listening to a lot of different civilizations at the same time, Planet Earth could possibly need to do something to stand out from the flock. We've got to make our message more interesting. And sometimes that's done in journalism with some very sordid and very nasty techniques that I really wouldn't like to repeat in extraterrestrial messages. We, we know what the tabloid news contains. I, d I don't want to go that far. I don't want to go that low. But if we think of the odd, the unusual, the interesting, the unique ways to get their attention with something that would entertain them or arouse their curiosity, that's the sort of story angle I'd like to take. Well, entertain them. But if you don't know anything about them, and we don't, of course, uh, give, give me some things that are, you know, sure winners when it comes to entertainment value, for example. Well, I'd say that uh, news of some of the odd things we do, our, our culture, our festivals, sort of like zombie walks or uh, some of our odd music or, or some, some of the, uh, the odd ways that people behave just in general public, the, the sort of things that make it onto YouTube and sort of sometimes wind up on the nightly news. These are oddities even to us. Now, if we find these things strange and unusual, imagine how an extraterrestrial species who doesn't even know much about humanity and finds us possibly a bit strange to start with would, would amplify those perceptions. What about reaching the audience at a level that they can understand, even aside from the entertainment value or their curiosity about the events, uh, just being able to communicate to them? Because when you publish uh, a newspaper or you go on the radio or television, you, you know, this, it's a very potentially very wide demographic and you want to reach as many as you can. What, what sort of techniques does journalism use to accomplish that? Well, we have journalism of various different levels and standards. I mean, you, you can read some very highbrow newspapers uh, that are you know, great for their quality, but uh, they, they don't seem to sell as well as uh, certain tabloid papers that tell you that uh, my sister is pregnant with an alien baby. Uh, and so that may interest the aliens, it, it may It may very well interest paternity. that, unless they're facing a paternity suit. Exactly. But uh, it, the, the point is, it's like any other product. You get upmarket, you get downmarket, you get expensive, you get cheap, you get high quality, you get low quality. And that, that's a reminder, I think, that journalism, it's a product for sale. It's a commodity, just as we buy clothing and food and furniture and any, and any other item. You, you get a variety of different things that you can get, and uh, that ties into economics and consumer demand. Well, we do not yet have a committee to craft messages to extraterrestrials. There have been messages that have been sent, but they've all been decided by a few people, mostly scientists. If such a committee were to be formed, would you want to be on it? I think I'd like to be on it, and I think I would like to see the committee reflect a very broad spectrum of how humankind communicates. It's, it's very good to see the way that the SETI community uh, has steadily broadened its horizons in terms of messaging. I mean, it started off with scientists and engineers and mathematicians and astronomers. Gradually, it's, it started to incorporate the humanities and artists, and uh, I think we could possibly go a bit further. And just to reflect on how many different modes we have, because the more people we include, the more options we have, and the more likely we have of composing a rich message and a message that's likely to succeed. Morris Jones, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thanks, Seth. Morris Jones is a reporter and space analyst based in Sydney, Australia. Okay, so we have some ideas about what we might say to the aliens, and at least one candidate for who would do the talking. But chattering across the cosmos is still largely uncharted territory. 
but we might get help in examining the work of those whose job it is to interpret our own ancient past, archaeologists. Also, could a middle school class project provide some help? What we can learn from time capsules coming up. It's how to talk to aliens on Big Picture Science. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed, from AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories. It helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. If E.T. is out there, what would you want to say to him or to her? Or, heck, the aliens might be genderless for all we know, or maybe they even have three sexes, or maybe they've evolved into machine intelligence, or they might not exist at all, and we are indeed alone in the cosmos. But we don't know. And because we don't know, one group of researchers is not entirely content to wait until the aliens contact us. Let's also reach out to them. So what would we say? Well, that was the subject of the conference Communicating Across the Cosmos in December 2014. Now, part of the challenge of crafting a Dear E.T. letter is that it must make sense across great swaths of space and time. Our message might take decades, centuries, or even millennia to reach another civilization whose members might not speak its language. Welcome to the field of archaeology, says Paul Wasson, who's also an anthropologist and vice president for the Templeton Foundation's life science programs. He told conference attendees that we might learn a lot about how to talk to aliens by first considering how to listen, or more specifically, how to understand any signal we might pick up from them. Now, that problem is similar to the one routinely faced by archaeologists, understanding cultures that existed thousands of years ago. And in this sense, communicating across space is like communicating across the millennia here on Earth. There are some things that the two enterprises have in common, one being that we don't actually have direct contact with the intelligent beings that we're studying. We have to put things together, all our conclusions, based on just a few facts with a lot of gaps in them. Well, can you give me something that we've found from some other society? We can't talk to those guys anymore, and we try and infer something from the remains. Well, you're probably familiar with the uh, Paleolithic cave paintings of southern Europe. These were found, some of them, about 100 years ago, maybe a little longer now. These are the, the paintings of, of animals on the walls of caves and something? Like Lascaux or Altamira. Mm -hmm. We can tell that it was made by other humans. We can uh, tell that they knew quite a bit about the animals they were painting. And um, not surprisingly, they had an intimate knowledge of the anatomy of the animals. But we're really not sure what they were doing, why they were doing these paintings, sometimes way back in the dark corner of a cave, not where they were living. So that's one element. We know these were done by humans. It took a lot of work. It took a lot of artistic skill, very symbolic, but we don't know what message they were sending. So if we got a message from E.T., it might be a, essentially a cave painting for us. I mean, we can see the obvious. It's, in that case, an animal or something. But we don't know why they did it, what they were trying to say with this, if they were trying to say anything. Yes. I think the first step is identifying some information that comes our way as a message. And I actually think that's probably fairly easy to do, a message from an intelligent being. We can recognize the signs of intelligence fairly easily, but deciphering the message I think would be difficult. How would you propose that we do that? Suppose that, you know, a SETI experiment succeeds and we, we actually get the bits, we actually get the message. What would you do? Turn it over to a handful of experts, maybe including yourself? <laughs> I would guess so. You would need people who understand the technology. So 
understand how information is coded in what are probably electromagnetic signals. But you would probably also need to think through, and, and people uh, interested in SETI are, are thinking this through, what kinds of messages might be sent. Was it intentional or was it a stray message meant for some other beings? The question, though, is if it's presented to us as part of, say, a, a language, as we might send a message in symbolic form, there's this difficulty that symbols have a, a, an arbitrary relationship to the meaning of them. Our languages seem natural to us, but, you know, the word dog doesn't really have any relation to the animal. It's just the convention. And our difficulty would be to get behind these conventions and see what is being said. Well, okay, so you say there are layers of symbolism that separate the message from the meaning, as it were. I mean, if you see D-O-G, of course, we're inculcated to immediately know what that is, and a picture of a dog springs into our minds or whatever, but it's just a series of squiggles on paper. So there's the problem, I take it. Part of the problem, then, is that often there are two layers of symbolism. So in a written language, the written form, the letters, form a, a symbol system, but they represent the language itself, which is another symbol system, which represents the idea being presented. Well, given these difficulties, I mean, how optimistic are you that we could figure something out? I, we started with the kinds of messages we get from the past as archaeological remains. Uh, Stonehenge comes to mind. I mean, it's clearly something somebody built, somebody with intelligence built. You could consider that a message from the Druids, if they, they're the ones that built it. But does anybody know what it means? Well, that's a good question. I, th I think we can learn a lot about the intelligent beings who sent a message just from the existence of the message, from the, the, the old phrase, Marshall McLuhan's phrase, the medium is the message. The medium would tell us quite a bit about those who sent it. It'll tell us that they are intelligent beings, that they're social beings because they're communicating. It won't tell us details about their physical nature, but they're able to manipulate raw materials and create technologies. Uh, it'll tell us all these things without even knowing what their message said. So I'm optimistic that we can learn a great deal more or less from the medium rather than the message. Paul Wasson, thank you so very much for talking with us. Thank you. Paul Wasson is an archaeologist and anthropologist and vice president for the Templeton Foundation's Life Sciences Program. Well, as he reminds us, if the medium is the message, then maybe the way to make ourselves understood to a foreign audience is to make sure that we at least make the medium interesting. And even middle school kids who have made a time capsule know how to do that. Al Harrison, professor emeritus of psychology at the University of California, Davis, says there are a lot of time capsules tucked away, and they're not all assembled by preteens. For example, there's a famous and elaborate time capsule buried somewhere near downtown Atlanta, assembled in 1936. It's called the Crypt of Civilization, and it's often said to be the first real effort to preserve history for the future. The International Time Capsule Society and I really dig their annual meetings, estimates that there are 10,000 or more time capsules worldwide, all waiting to be opened at some future date. And when they are, whoever pulls them out of the ground will sift through an array of artifacts, some obvious, some mystifying, newspapers, records, yes, even the vinyl kind, clothing, coins, household goods, whatever it is that people have preserved to tell future generations what their lives were like. Al, when it comes to uh, sending messages to E.T., uh, you recommend looking at an historical precedent, namely time capsules. Why is that? Yes, I do, because the people who worked on time capsules were sending messages to the future, and so are we when we send messages to E.T. The difference is, of course, that we're hoping for a response, whereas the time capsule people were sending one-way messages. Well, can you tell me the kind of things that they would put into time capsules? Oh, my goodness, all kinds of things went into time capsules. There's estimated to be 50, 100,000 time capsules. They include everything from treatises on cigars to attempts to sample widely various uh, artifacts and ideas from the time that they were sent, say, in the crypt of civilization around 1940. Well, what was in that? That, that That's a fairly oh, famous one, right? Yes, it's in a uh, former swimming pool at Oglethorpe University in Atlanta, and it contains uh, all sorts of artifacts, including... Uh, 
dresses and eyeglasses and the original film of uh, Gone with the Wind and uh, cash registers and all oh, the list just goes on extensively. And a lot of consultation was performed in choosing these items, including with the National Bureau of Standards. So it was really quite an endeavor. And tremendous work was put into trying to preserve these. Uh, whether or not they'll last till 8113, I don't even know how to say that simply. <laughs> Such a long way away. Uh, it remains to be seen. But they get an A-plus for effort, and they are doing everything they can to keep it protected. 8113, that's 6,000 years from now. That's when they expected this thing to be opened up? Yes, I believe it was May 24th. <laughs> well, okay. and that's, that's very seriously that they uh, picked a very specific date. Is it a Tuesday? And uh, one wonders, uh, you know, um, I, I know lots of people can do that in their head, but I can't. And uh, uh, it'll be interesting what kinds of calendars might be in use, if any, at that time. You know, that 6,000 doesn't sound like coincidence. Uh, there, there are people who think the Earth is only 6,000 years old, so this would be the halfway point? I believe that that's not completely true, but that they did see it as halfway through civilization, going back to some period in Egypt which they call the start line. Okay, well, getting back to the question of what we might say to E.T., hearing you, it sounds like these time capsules had sort of a, uh, a broad spectrum of popular culture. Did they have anything like the Harvard five-foot shelf or whatever? I mean, did they have any academic stuff? Oh, yes, they had lots of academic stuff, many books. Uh, it was supposed to be a history of civilization right up to uh, 1939, and uh, it was heavily loaded towards artifacts from the... 20th century, because that was what was available, but it was essentially to be a halfway report on the history of uh, civilization. Okay, so your thought here is that if we're going to contemplate what's called active SETI, in other words, we're not just going to listen, we're going to also broadcast something to some putative civilization out there, that we take a leaf from the time capsule book and include similar sorts of info. Yes, uh, it may have to be adapted for use by radio, certainly. And there have been lessons learned by the time capsule people since the closure in 1940. But I think the, the main message of that particular time capsule gives us clues in terms of how to pick things wisely, who to consult with. I mean, this was not, you know, one person sitting down and saying, we'll have this, we'll have that, we'll have the other thing. A lot of work went into it. And in fact, it was that time capsule that inspired the uh, New York World's Fair time capsule of 1939-40 and many afterwards. I see. So were there any types of uh, artifacts or, I don't know, bits of information that were not included in this kind of time capsule that you personally would want to put in any message to the aliens? I'd be a little bit cautious on some things. For example, I would not include, as did this time capsule, uh, greetings from people like Hitler and Mussolini. Of course, we never know who's going to be a good guy and a bad guy, or at least uh, people weren't facing up to it when these um, time capsules were sealed in the United States. But I think that you want to present a, a broad array of ideas and artifacts or pictures or descriptions of artifacts. But, you know, a little bit of uh, self-censorship might be in order. I would not send a time capsule consisting of nothing but the day's robberies and physical assaults, something like that. Well, that I can understand as being non-representative. But, you know, you could send Hitler, and that would offend us here on Earth, but I can't imagine it would offend the, the extraterrestrials. Well, of course, that was tried, wasn't that, in the movie uh, Contact? <laughs> and um, there could be many different voices sending information forth, which I think is a argument for very capable people with the right equipment coming together with a good assembly and sending it. doesn't mean it's going to be perfect, but it does mean that there'll be some forethought and it won't be under the control of a limited number of individuals. So, Al, bottom line, there's a lot of controversy about broadcasting to extraterrestrials. We've kind of done it inadvertently and sometimes deliberately, right? We've, we've, we have sent some messages deliberately into space, uh, even recently. Sure. It's already happened, and to stop now, to me, doesn't make much sense. We've got to have a continuous record. We've got to broaden the record. Uh, we've got to make sure that there's at least some representation of Earth as a whole. And it makes sense to me to try to take the initiative rather than leaving it to companies that have specific commercial products, specific political views, and specific access to grind. Now, it could be argued that anybody who does this has some sort of slant orientation. But I think that checks and balances would be applied by uh, taking a group of scholars, aided and assisted, widespread consultation, careful vetting, and then uh, preparing a message that speaks for Earth rather than just for 
a part of Earth or a very specific interest group. One of the recommendations from the time capsule people is that you consult broadly, you get lots of different ideas, but ultimately somebody has to make a decision and that the group fighting among itself is not necessarily the one to make the decision. Al Harrison, thank you so very much for uh, coming on the air to talk about uh, going on the air. You're very welcome, Seth. Always a pleasure to talk to you and to be here today. Al Harrison is Professor Emeritus of Psychology at the University of California in Davis. Time capsules seem to be a promising prototype for the type of message we might send, and it's a good example of how broadly the SETI researchers were casting their net in convening this conference to consider the question of how you talk to the aliens. After all, time capsules are people talking to people, not people talking to aliens. Maybe we shouldn't become too satisfied by any of this talk here. We can't even be certain that the aliens would have language, says one linguist. And some scientists issue a bleaker message. The eminent physicist Stephen Hawking has warned that talking to the aliens is not just foolhardy, it's dangerous. It's how to talk to aliens, and perhaps the case for keeping quiet, on Big Picture Science. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. You're hearing from scientists who attended a conference entitled Communicating Across the Cosmos, held at the SETI Institute in December 2014, they have some diverse perspectives on how to craft a message to E.T., but they are assuming that E.T. has language. Alien brains could be different from ours, and aliens might interact with their environment differently. What if our language, written or spoken, is as odd to them as using odors to tell stories would be to us? Sherry Wells Jensen, a linguist at Bowling Green State University, cautioned eager cosmic conversationalists not to get their hopes up about chatting with aliens. We might be out of luck. I hate to say that, but we might be out of luck. So you can't necessarily hypothesize that language has to co-occur with intelligence because maybe it doesn't. We So far, all the intelligent species we know have language, and there might be others on our planet, but we don't know for sure. So. We say all the intelligent species we know. What are you talking about? One, right? One. N is, N is one, and with a big glorious N equals one, you know, what can you really, what can you really extrapolate from that? I don't know. Okay, so when somebody says, uh, well, they could learn our language, they always do in the movies, I have to say. In fact, they learn colloquial English. They, uh, yeah, they, they come speaking English. Isn't that awesome? It's really quite handy. <laughs> uh, so the idea that they could learn our language or that we could learn theirs if it were offered it may be misplaced to confidence. It's a little bit sad to consider, but it, and it might not be reciprocal. Perhaps we could learn theirs because... We have this cognitive ability to learn language, and maybe they don't. Maybe theirs is all innate, so they wouldn't be able to learn ours back. So it doesn't necessarily follow that I could learn yours, you could learn mine. You know, uh, getting back to the fact that they all do speak colloquial English, it, it's also colloquial English of the moment. They're not speaking the way they would have, I don't know, in the 19th century even. Languages don't seem to be very durable in the detail, you know, that they, they seem to be morphing all the time. Right. They'll change right up from under you. So whatever we are speaking now is terrific and we understand it. If you look back 400 years ago, thou wouldst find something different. If you look back 700 years ago, you've got something that I can't even enter into without a degree in sort of Old English, Middle English. And then if you go back 1,200 years to Old English, you really are out of luck. It's a whole different language. So that might have consequences here. I mean, suppose we establish uh, that there's some extraterrestrial society 500 light years away, and we deign to get in touch with them by broadcasting message, hi, we're the earthlings, whatever. 
we're, we're talking about timescales, 500 years and 1,000 years to get a reply. I mean, our language may not even be the same. The second time we talk to them, it won't be the same language. Right, right. So it's, it's 500 years out, like you said, and then 500 back. And by the time they said, so about what you said about that, and you're like, oh, let me look. What did I say? Not only, not only do I not remember, but I don't even know what it meant. It's not even in my language anymore. Some of the things we've sent into space involve written language. We send them texts. And, uh, you know, text sounds like an obvious way to communicate, at least if you can read. And so the thought is maybe you could teach the aliens to read our languages. But this whole idea that you would encode a language in symbols, you know, writing, basically, uh, is that a given? I mean, if you have a language, do you always learn how to write? No, no. Um, so there are about 7,000 languages in existence on the planet today. Only about 50% of those have writing systems. So we can't guarantee that they have writing. You can invent things. You can think things up without writing. And maybe they had writing for a while and then thought, you know what, we don't need that anymore. Because you can, you can transmit information to one another clearly without writing. We had a guest on this show once who uh, made the prediction that rather soon we won't have writing anymore in the sense that people won't get their information by reading and writing. It will all be, you know, their, their machines will speak to them or some other method. You wouldn't have to. So if you are accustomed to listening to voice synthesis, for example, you can speed that sucker up so he's going at three, four hundred words a minute. So if you want to review some material and you don't read that fast, you just put it on your computer, turn up the voice, and bang. You can also do speech compression, right? So if you're listening to an audiobook, maybe you do listen to it at the rate that it was recorded, at the rate someone is speaking, but maybe you turn it up to double so you can get 10-hour book read in five hours. So if you were tasked with constructing a message to E.T., given the caveat that maybe they don't even have a written language, what would you do? Would you just send, you know, recorded uh, sounds? Uh, they might not uh, have a spoken language. I mean, what would you do? Well, I mean, you, you don't necessarily get to win, right? I mean, you, you, cast your, you cast your bread on the galactic waters. How many metaphors am I mixing there? You, you, <laughs> I have a metaphor for that, <laughs> for my answer. So you, you send out your stuff and you can't know. You don't, there's no guarantees that you get to win. We could be utterly, completely incomprehensible. So you do what you can do, and you do it in as many ways as you can do it. So maybe you go ahead and you send out your written stuff because that's, that might work. And then you send out recordings. You send out visuals. Um, you send out as much realia. Make, make the situation as real as you can make it, maybe including, I don't know, with brainwave recordings of the people who are speaking, anything you can think of. You think a lot about language. And one thing you've pointed out is things that our language can't do very well. And I, th I think to anybody who earns their living writing, for example, they would contest the very premise that there are things that our writing can't do or our language can't do. Maybe you could give me a couple of examples. So absolutely can't do. We cannot automatically make a sentence and at the end of every sentence produce a number of consonants in that sentence. We just can't do it. We can't, for example, keep track of the number of words in an utterance. Um, there are some sort of complicated syntactic things that we can't do that have to do with relative clauses. We just simply cannot keep track of, of some of this stuff. Our hearing system is good over, you know, several thousand hertz at least, 20 to 20 kilohertz or whatever, but, you know, at least thousands of cycles per second of hertz. And yet we have this extraordinarily low bit rate called spoken language. It would seem to me that, yeah, if you were really a clever being, maybe you could have a higher bit rate either by speaking much more quickly or simply having multiple channels at once, some at the high end of the spectrum and some at the low end of the spectrum. I mean, you know, people have thought about this. Engineers have thought about how to do this, and yet we don't. It's cool. You could encode some stuff in the harmonics, like way up high, and you could encode other things in other ways. We would need the physiology to do it, right? Or I guess we could install something. We could install some kind of little doodad, some kind of little technical thing. Uh, little implants in our vocal system, I suppose. Yeah, I, I think that that would be a great thing at parties because you wouldn't have to constantly interrupt your conversation to refresh your drink. You could get it all in just a few seconds. So what you're saying is we need like an ultrasonic waiter channel, waiter frequency. <laughs> well, I'm not thinking of the waiters here. I'm just thinking of the other guests. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, finally then, you've come to a conference here on communicating across the cosmos, you know, discussing the questions that naturally arise if we're talking about, you know, actually not just detecting other civilizations, but maybe getting in touch or at least understanding what they may be sending our way. How optimistic are you that we're ever going to understand one another? Well, uh, let's see, is this Tuesday? And then I feel pretty good about it. If it's Wednesday, maybe I don't. Um, 
<laughs> I think it really goes, it goes back and forth. And it doesn't matter in the end how optimistic I feel it could happen tomorrow or it could happen in 50,000 years or it could never happen. I mean, I'm generally an optimistic person, so I figure it's going to happen. And then I'm enough of a realist to know that once it's happened, we have a lot more work ahead of us. It's not going to be all of a sudden we understand. There's a lot more decoding to do. Sherry Wells Jensen, thank you so very much for using the mechanisms of language to speak with us today. (laughs) Thank you very much. Sherry Wells Jensen is a linguist at Bowling Green State University. So talking to aliens, while it's always pretty simple in the movies, might actually be a very difficult problem. Not only are there cultural barriers to understanding, but the physiology of the creatures might keep them from understanding what we're trying to say. But are we missing the boat here, or the spaceship, as it were? Maybe we shouldn't be attempting to communicate with aliens at all. In 2010, famed physicist Stephen Hawking warned that doing so is tantamount to turning on a big neon sign saying, hey, we're here, and that might bring on catastrophe. So if aliens ever visit us, I think the outcome would be much as when Christopher Columbus first landed in America which didn't turn out very well for the Native Americans. The idea is you don't want to shout in the jungle because you really don't know what's out there and whatever is out there might be hungry. So do we put ourselves in danger yelling, Yoo-hoo, aliens, over here! Well, we give the last word to Doug Vakoch, the organizer of the Communicating Across the Cosmos conference. Doug no less than Stephen Hawking has suggested that sending any message into space so that extraterrestrials would receive it is possibly dangerous. And I mean, Stephen Hawking is a genius, but he can't predict the future. You know, when, when Stephen Hawking said in 2010 that an extraterrestrial might take their spacecraft and come to Earth and sort of mine our planet, strip mine our planet, we had no idea that long ago that planets like Earth are everywhere. So, I mean, the the motivation that Hawking mentioned, that an extraterrestrial would come to Earth to take our rare resources, it it doesn't hold. I mean, you, you have those same resources closer to home. But if, in fact, there's something so important about Earth, why haven't they already come? I mean, the reality is it is... Because because they don't know we're here. Well, I I hate to tell you, Molly, but if any civilization has the ability to travel between the stars, they can pick up I Love Lucy. So maybe the, the very primitive civilizations like ours don't know that we're here, but anyone who has warp drive, they can already pick up our weak radio signals. So sending a message saying that we are interested in making contact, that we have peaceable intents, doesn't have any added risk for a civilization that could do us harm. But couldn't you also argue that whenever two civilizations have come into first contact in the history of the world, it often doesn't end well for one of them. Take the Native Americans and and the Spaniards, for one. And that's if you really think that this contact face-to-face is is a viable threat. But again... So you don't? I I don't think it is. I don't think it is. It's incredible. There's nothing that you can get that's valuable as an extraterrestrial, that you have to travel all the way across the galaxy, that you can't get through an interstellar exchange. There'd be no other reason that our signaling a message that we're here might just provoke an extraterrestrial for another reason, whether or not they wanted our resources. I can't see any. And, and, you know, one of the difficulties of this conversation is that I think sometimes people have a, a perception that an action or uh, doing something, sending something, is more liable to cause trouble than not doing something. You know, maybe it's the fact that not trying to make contact is something that a, a civilization will be find off-putting. And so I think there's no justification for um, the idea that sending a signal would be provoking to another civilization. Well, finally, how are you and the scientists involved in this project planning to beam or transmit whatever message does get constructed? The whole question of whether there should be intentional signals from Earth is still being discussed very heatedly at times. Some people do have concerns. uh, And, you know, I've said I don't think that any of those concerns about um, uh, any hostile attacks from aliens are credible. 
But I want to hear from others if they have a reason to think so. And does that include people outside the scientific community so that it's not just scientists who are making this decision since the consequences would have a bearing on everyone? Absolutely. So that's why we need to have people who haven't been engaged in the conversation give us their insights and really look at are there risks and are there benefits of this whole enterprise? Doug Vakoch, thank you so much for speaking to us. My pleasure. Doug Vakoch is Director of Interstellar Message Composition at the SETI Institute. Okay, I'm going to weigh in on this a little bit. I agree with Doug, and I have to disagree a little bit with Stephen Hawking. It's really too late to worry about this because that horse has left the barn. Our most powerful signals are not actually I Love Lucy. It's the radars that we have for, you know, aircraft and incoming missiles or whatever. We have a lot of radars, and any society that could come here and ruin your whole day, they can pick up those radars. So you're saying that the broadcasts have already gone out. They've been going out for a long time, and so we shouldn't worry about that. And we should be clear, though, that this idea of a deliberate broadcast has not happened yet. This was a a blue sky kind of conference to talk about. If we were to broadcast, what might the content of that message be? How would we do it? And also, uh, what would some of the difficulties be? And as it was pointed out, the aliens may not have language at all. They may not have the physiology to understand. But that's why I personally would send the Google servers. I've said this before. Just send a lot of information, not little greeting cards. Send them as much stuff as you can because they might be able to figure some of that out. Thanks to a production team that finds us indecipherable but works with us anyway. Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also thanks to financial support from Rena Sholsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, whose research staff investigates the nature and origin of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to How to Talk to Aliens. And if you found that this show spoke to you and you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, there are plenty of episodes to be found in our archive online at our website, bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer over-the-air radio because now you know that those broadcasts are being shared with the aliens, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and you have a comment, a criticism, maybe a suggestion, throw in a nice word or two, then email it all to bigpicturescience at SETI.org. In a language that we can all understand. I don't insist on that. Such a massive place as the cosmos, we only had to look at ourselves for proof that extremely unlikely things can and do happen all the time. Let's just hope that if aliens do find us, they'll come in peace.